Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is indeed the gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the gospel of Micah. It is the gospel of the reality of sin, but not just the reality of sin, but the reality of mercy and hope. And so as we've been studying this little tiny letter, I want to encourage you to take your Bible and turn to the table of contents. Go to the table of contents and look up where Micah is there. On my Bible, it's 776. You kind of, in fact, if you would, everybody turn into your, your table of contents there and look at that. Where is Micah in your Bible? Do you see the number that is there? Do you see the number? Get ready. Tell everybody what the number is of Micah. Go ahead and say it, shout it out right now. What, what page number is that? Oh, okay. Seven's yours is the same as mine, huh? One of the Moran boys there. Okay. Um, but go ahead and turn with me to the book of Micah. If you don't have sermon notes, I think I've just lost our guys, but um, there are sermon notes and you need them. And in fact, some of you are joining us online and you don't know that there are sermon notes on our website. And the way we study the Bible, especially this morning as we look um, through a a lengthy passage, you're going to really need those notes. I want to encourage you to uh, print those out and you can take those and really um, gain much more. Well, the title of the message today is rather intriguing and interesting and it has to do with the realities of what Micah is dealing with, and not only what Micah is dealing with in 700 years before Christ, but also what we deal with in this present day and time. We see that Micah is concerned about justice. We see that Micah is concerned about the realities of oppression and sin, and about a nation that is not honoring God, where there's many wicked and evil things happening against people that hurt people. We see around the world in this present moment that this continues day in and day out. In fact, last night while I was finishing my thoughts about this message, I happened to have my email open and my email dinged very late at night. And I opened it up and from one of the dear families in the life of our church, I received a message that said, As you know, we went up to Central Florida this week, and tonight as we drove home, someone called my mom impersonating a police officer and saying, your kids have been involved in a car accident and were unconscious and we need their names. The mom hysterically began to respond and obviously very nervously, gave names out. And at this point, the person informed them, well, I'm not the police, actually. And we're coming after you and your family. This is all in Spanish. The phone number was from another country. We're demanding money. Or kidnap and death will occur. This mother, very shaken, terrified for her children and her grandchildren, runs out of the house with the phone on speakerphone and a neighbor nearby was able to intervene and was also able to come and realized it was a scam, hopefully. 
Friends, we live in a world where sin has come and where humans are capable of all kinds of treachery against one another. It isn't the, it isn't the exception. It is rampant. We have police officers in the life of this church that are faithfully seeking to try to help hold the place together. We're studying on Wednesday nights in Secret Church God, government, and the gospel. And we're seeing that God has given government to us to help govern our sin. Without it, we would tear ourselves apart. And we see that God in his redemptive plan, if you were with us Wednesday night, you saw creation, then fall, and redemption, and restoration. This narrative of the Bible that's being played out, that we see God working using all events of history to bring about his salvation of his people. And Micah is telling us about this picture that not only is occurring 700 years before Jesus, the Messiah, would be born, but we are seeing hints and pictures and glimpses of not only God's, listen, not only his judgment against all of our sin, but we also are seeing his hope. We just were singing about his hope that in the midst of our darkness, God is saying, I have hope for you. And your hope is found in my mercy. And my mercy is seen in Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God coming to rescue us from this mess. And so this morning as we come and as we look at land grabbers and line preachers and highway robbers... We see the realities of sin not only 700 years before Christ, B.C., but we also see it in our own day. Notice here with me the review. Maybe some of you are new to it and you're thinking, oh, wow, they're studying one of the minor prophets. I've heard about the minor prophets. The minor prophets are the shorter ones. Their, their, their message is not less important. It's simply shorter than the major prophets. Um, this isn't like Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, where one is, you know, better than the other, uh, or, you know, one is more skilled than the other. That, that's not the picture at all. It's just one set of messages are longer, and one set of messages are shorter. If you look at Isaiah, there's many chapters, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, those are the major ones. Well, the minor ones are those little letters first throughout the end of the New Testament that are helping us see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and listen, the hope that God has for us. So we have studied already in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the fact that it is good for Christians to become aware of the judgments of God. We know that it's not popular in many pulpits. We know that many congregations won't sit still to hear um, the in-depth nature and description of sin to be gone over, but we can learn much. We can learn much about God, and listen, we can learn much about ourselves and the real motivations of God, and that's what the end of this message will be, many applications that we will quickly see of how this applies to our daily life as seen in the book of Micah. So notice on the review here, the prophecy of Micah, the prophecy of Micah is how many cycles? Do you see it right there? How many cycles? 
Okay, that was very, very weak. It's in bold print on the top of your outline there. The prophecy of Micah is how many cycles? Very good. There's three of them. And what do they compose? They compose judgment and mercy. This is, we see this going over and over again. In each one of these cycles, judgment is declared, but we're not left in the judgment in this. We see that for God's true people, that his mercy will come through the judgment and through the circumstance of bringing a rescue. And so whenever you're studying the minor prophets and the major prophets, but especially when you're studying the minor prophets, it is really, really good to pay attention, yes, to the sin that's being judged and the declaration that a holy God is going to bring judgment on this. But listen, it's also really good and it's so refreshing to find those woven, beautiful uh, streams of mercy that flow through every minor prophet. And so we're going to see both of those this morning once again. You see, the setting is that the people of Israel are in rebellion and have sinned against God and put out there to the side 500 years. For 500 years, at one point or another, and at various levels of deg uh, degrees, they have broken the Mosaic Covenant. So they've broken the laws of God. The law that was given through Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all that went with the plan of God for them to see his holiness and their need for a Messiah, they are breaking those laws. And God sends prophets to help them see, to declare to them his judgment against that rebellion. And the first cycle is where we are today. We've already looked at this a little bit. Notice first cycle. What is the first cycle? Read it out loud to me, those two words that are up there. What is it? Very good. Destruction and regathering. You're coming online there. Okay. This is just chapters one and two. And then look at the second cycle. It's doom and deliverance, right? Look at the third cycle. It's denunciations and salvation. You notice that there's judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy. Now look back up at the first cycle and we see this that in chapter 1 verses 2 through 16 through the end of it we see it's the revelation that there is a coming judgment. Micah is saying you all better batten down the hatches because judgment is coming and it is going to be in, because your sin is incurable. You will not be able to avoid what is about to happen. God is bringing judgment. He is personally bringing judgment on his people. And notice the next thing, and this is what we're going to study this morning, the reasons for the coming judgment. We're going to see why. What was the problem? And not only are we going to see the reasons, but we're also going to see this bit of mercy we're going to see that there's mercy here, that God is still merciful, and he's going to bring a rescue by regathering after the judgment. So that's where we're going to be uh, this morning as we go. Let's skip down there toward the bottom. Notice, in every cycle, God's mercy, we said this last week, in every cycle, God's mercy does what? It prevails. God's mercy prevails through and over his judgment for his true people, with his true people. This is the beautiful thing. 
that for God's people, yes, they experience his judgment, but his mercy overcomes his judgment. And we see this ultimately, as we said last week, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where mercy wins. This is where forgiveness wins for his true people, for the people who are really his. And it's important for us to recognize that when we're talking about the nation of Israel, we are talking about a covenant nation for God. But was everybody in the covenant nation of God faithful to God? No. In fact, there are times when almost no one of God's covenant people are faithful. That there's just a very few And even the very few who wind up being faithful to him at various points, they have trouble and they have disobedience. And they too have violated the laws of God, the covenant of God. But listen, God in his mercy is still working through his people, still working through his nation. And yes, listen, There are wicked people, a large group of wicked people. Very often even the leaders are wicked, but there's still a group. And we're going to see this group that is there, that is faithful to God. Doesn't mean they're sinless. Doesn't mean they perfectly follow after the Lord. But we see that they are true. They are true to God in their faith in Him. And we see that there are the wicked and those who are true. And all are being judged, but God comes and his mercy prevails for his people. Now, let's look at chapter 2. Let's look at the reasons. Um, I think it it shouldn't say reason. It should say reasons for the coming judgment. And we're going to see a few of them. So in chapter 1... He's, been, they, he's declared judgment is coming and it's going to be bad. And now he is just pointing out what the problems are. Let's read the first five verses. Notice this in verse 1. He says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. So they're laying there at night. They're thinking about it. They're thinking about it. They're planning it. They're going to do what they're going to do, and as soon as daylight comes, boom, they're out the door, and they are executing their plan of wickedness and evil. So we're going to see some things about that, but what do they do? Verse 2 shows what they do. They covet fields. What does covet mean? It means to envy something, to want it, and to want it for themselves. So they look at something and they covet it. They decide that it's an object of something that they want. They covet fields, and then what do they do? Seize them. And houses. And they take them away. They oppress a man and his house. A man and his inheritance. Verse 3. Therefore thus says the Lord... Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster, those who do these things. Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. You see, judgment is being declared. Verse 4. 
In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our field. So he's saying, there's going to be a song you're going to sing, and that song is going to be saying, look what God is doing to us. Look how others are coming and taking away what we have. Actually, others are coming and taking away what you stole. Look at verse 5. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. We're going to discuss what that means. Key observations. Let's look at a few things here. First of all, let me remind you, and this is not in the observations, but you need to remember this, that this is Hebrew poetry. And we, as good old English speakers... Um, or Spanish speakers, or Russian speakers, we have a hard time with this because we don't know Hebrew and we can't see the rhymes and we can't see the puns. If you study Hebrew for a while, if you were to devote yourself to that for a long time, this would become more and more and more vivid in full color. You would see it clearer and clearer and clearer. It's a beautiful thing. Now, just because we don't know Hebrew doesn't mean we can't get some very important things out of this, especially from preaching and explaining or especially from you studying and learning. Now, one of the great things that some of you can do is go learn Hebrew. And some of you young men and young ladies, you should go learn Hebrew. Marcy's, one of her favorite classes in seminary was Hebrew. And uh, I was more of a Greek guy. She was more of a Hebrew gal. And um, so, you know, she, she enjoyed that. And because it's so rich. And there's, there's, let me tell you, that there's a dozen things that I could print out, uh, I could uh, point out from this passage that have to do with puns and rhymes and second meanings that this is amazing, beautiful Hebrew poetry. Um, but just because we can't go into all of that, one, because I'm not so extremely uh, proficient in that, there is plenty still, though, an enormous amount still, though, that we can gain from this and that we can inculcate into our lives to help us to see. First of all, let us recognize Isaiah blasts corrupt politics in the capital, put above the capital of Jerusalem. So Isaiah is the prophet that is in the capital. He is in the prophet that is in the presence of the king. He is, a, he is the prophet that has all of the large crowds out there in the, in the beautiful city of Jerusalem. At the same time, Micah, he is blasting social wrongs in his province. Now, I've already left those full for you to give you a little head start here. But understand, remember with me, Micah is the guy that's out in the country. And it doesn't mean his message is less important. We see that verse 1 of chapter 1 says the word of the Lord came through Micah. So this is God speaking. This is why we ought to listen. This is why it matters to us in 2020. But here we see that Micah is blasting. And what I want you to notice here is the social wrongs. It's not just about the big politics that God is concerned, but it's also about the way people are relating to one another. That is a big, big deal to holy God. Notice the next part. In the minor prophets, we see God's hatred. Circle the word hatred. God's hatred of social injustice and crime. Why does God hate that? Because he is a God of justice. He is a God of love and of grace. And listen, 
of generosity. He is not a God of greed. And so what happens is, is that when greed comes into the human condition, there comes a desire to take what others have and make it your own. And to build vast storehouses for yourselves at the detriment of others. This is a social injustice, a oppression of the poor. Notice the next thing. Many of the Mosaic laws that were given through Moses, many of the Mosaic laws, were designed to protect the poor and the powerless. Not all of the laws. Some of the laws were actually designed to protect the rich. Because God says that some are going to be rich and some are going to be poor. The rich are not better than the poor. The poor are not better than the rich. We see that God values all. He reigns on the just and on the unjust. And he, he gives different portions for others, for all for his grand purposes. He knows what he's doing when he makes some wealthy and when he makes some poor. But here we see that you better not oppress the poor. You better not mistreat the poor. In your powerful position, you better not take advantage of the powerless. And we see that that's throughout the minor prophets, that a lot of attention is given to this. And part of this is what we, listen, why is this important? It's because it teaches us about the heart of God. This is why Sheridan Hills needs to know the minor prophets. This is why we need to understand the message of Micah. So we can start to see, oh, God values this, and he values this, and he, and he looks at it this way in our lives. This is very important to us. This is where we see our sin and where we've gone wrong. Notice the next part here. Here we see law twisting. Fill that in. You see, these guys that are talked about in verse 1 and verse 2 are twisting the laws. They're twisting the Mosaic law. And they are sitting there and they're distorting it. And they're using it in order to take advantage of others. And what we see here is this first one of land grabbing. That's what's happening. They're taking advantage of the weak. They're taking advantage of the loopholes. They are exploiting that, exploiting that. Notice here in verse 1, it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power, in the power of their hands. So this is the powerful people taking advantage of the poor people. And they're finding a way to go from being rich to being more rich at the cost of the poor. Look at verse 2. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. So what we see in Mosaic law is, is that there were some people who the land that they had comes through their family and that the law says that is not to be taken away. That is not to be taken away from them. This is their inheritance. And it is not to be uh, used because of usury, because of um, un unjust interest rules in unjust times of taking advantage. In fact, the Mosaic Law even had ways in order to give back land after, it had been after there had been times of difficulty. Well, all of that is being distorted and people are being taken advantage of. And it's, and it's a horrible thing. People's, people's homes are being taken away in this, in a way that is, that is evil and wrong. It's theft. 
And so notice this. We notice a few things. In verse 1, we see that this is premeditated. Look what it says up there. They devise wickedness. They're working at it. And they think about it on their beds. And then number, also in verse 1, it's brazen and it's shameless. I mean, they, when the morning dawns, so in full daylight, they go out and do it. And they perform it. And they do it because they can. They do it because they have the power to do it. And then look at the next one there. It's ruthless and it's merciless. Look at verse 2. They take the fields, they take the houses, they take what a man's inheritance is. They don't care about how it, how it goes for him. This is merciless. They may even have a technical right to do it, but they do not take into consideration the greater concern. And we see in this, especially when you see at the end of verse 2 where it mentions the inheritance, this is where Micah is saying that you are violating the law. It's illegal. It's illegal, and we see it in Leviticus 25 and Numbers 27 and 1 Kings 21. And does this mean if a man has debts um, that he cannot have action against him? No, you can. In fact, the scripture would say uh, a man who has debts under certain circumstances, action can be taken against him. Just because someone, um, their home, they lose their home, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that that's evil and that that's wrong. I mean, people make this, and there, there are the laws of the land, whether it's the United States in 2020 or whether it's Israel um, 700 years before Christ, there, there is a way to determine and there is a right to determine what is just and what is unjust in this process. This is talking about the unjust process. This is obviously talking about not the proper workings of law and finance in default, this is talking about the distortion of that and the extortion of that. And so we see a very, a very strong wickedness in the leaders. We see a very strong wickedness in the power of those who are in charge. We notice this. Notice, I, I want you to notice, you know, I've, I've highlighted there in verse 1 that those who devise wickedness, now look in verse 3, we change gears because it goes from pointing out their sin to verse 3 and 4 is pointing out what God's going to do about it. Okay? So look at verse 3. He says, therefore, because of their sin, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. And it's the same word. The, wi the word wickedness can be used two ways. And this is one of those Hebrew plays that I was telling you about. The word for wickedness in verse 1 is the same word for disaster in verse 3. And so Micah is, is using this in a poetic way. He's playing on it. And he's saying that the wicked devise wickedness and now God the holy devises judgment. Does that make sense? If you think that's cool, would you say amen? And for those of you who don't think that's cool, wake up. Um, that's amazing. And, and I'll just say that there's, there's dozens of those in this. But it's, it's beautiful how we start to see that God is serious about judgment. He is devising what he's going to do to make it right. And friends, 
without his mercy, you do not want to experience his wrath. Because he knows how to judge sin. This is why we must run to Christ. This is why our hope, we've just sung about, our hope is in Christ who took the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God so we don't have to take the wrath of God. And if Jesus really has taken the wrath of God, we're going to live in gratitude. And listen, we're going to live in righteousness. Our life is going to reflect that we've been bought by the precious blood of Christ. Because God is devising wicked. Look what he says in verse 3. Behold, against this family, the family of evildoers, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily. You see, he's going he's to humble them. For it will be a time of what? A disaster. I've got to be honest with you, as Americans, um, growing up here, all of us, maybe the earliest that somebody was born in this room would have been in the 1920s, most likely. You know, we've had a few hard times, but we've not really had disaster compared to most places of the world. There's very few of us that if we've been in the United States all this time, some people have come out of places of great disaster. Some people have come from the Eastern Bloc. Some people have come from the Caribbean. Some people have come from other places of the world where there has been true disaster. And they, they would say, oh man, it can get bad. It can get bad where you're running for your life. It can get bad where you lose house and home. It can get bad where everything you, go, everything you have is gone. Whether that is the direct work of God in the judgment upon a nation in a particular way, or whether that is part of the vortex of sin in a world that has evil in it. We see this play out. Notice this. Fill this in down there at the bottom. God will judge the whole nation of Israel by sending the godless Assyrians and Babylonians to crush and humble them. God can go and take the pagans next door and bring them to spank his people. And we see that over and over again. In fact, most of the minor prophets and the major prophets, I mean, it's all about God's people and their sin and their God, him dealing with them. It's not all about all of the other nations and their sin. God is dealing with his people. And he is showing them that he is the only hope for his people. So look at verse 4. It says, In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. The apostate, that's the, that's the Assyrians. Those who have run off from God. Those who God now uses to judge and punish. But, look at verse 5. There's a little tiny ray of hope. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now the assembly of the Lord is God's people. 
And what this is indicating is that even when all this disaster comes, even when God comes and judges the sin, there's this ray of hope. There's this thread of people that still know and love God. And they are still there. And yes, no one will be there to help you with the allotment as we saw that the land was divvied up, that the lots were, were drawn and land was given out. And you're saying, yes, for the wicked, no one is going to be there to do that. But the assembly of the Lord is still going to be present. So fill this in, the lower right part. A remnant, that's a key word, a remnant will remain. And so not all are going to be lost. All of God's nation is not going to be destroyed. There's going to be a remnant. That word remnant shows up over and over again in the minor prophets. This is where God is merciful. This is where we see he would be justified to wipe out. But because he made a covenant with Abraham, he keeps his covenant. And he is keeping it and fulfilling it. Now... Micah has just declared, he has just said, you people are stealing people's land. You people devise this on purpose. You're merciless. And God is going to judge you. And what happens when Micah preaches this message? Well, there's other preachers in the area that don't like it. And notice what they do. And this is where we come. Verses 6 and 7, we're going to see the wicked, lying preachers. And what this in part shows us is there's always been wicked, lying preachers. They exist today and they existed in the day of Micah. We know as we studied Jude and we studied James, many of you were shocked to find out that in the New Testament there is such clarity in the book of Jude about the wicked preachers that, that were in the first century. And many of us, as we studied that, we were just sitting here looking at it, they're going, wow, that could have been written about today. We have all of these people who claim to speak for God. You know, give so I can have a Learjet. Give so I can have a, a yacht. Give so you can get more. I mean, the, the whole prosperity gospel or all of these other various acts of religiosity that are distortions of the gospel. They have a bit of the truth and they, they put Jesus' name on it as they do it for their own gratification. We see in Jude, we see in James that sometimes it's for their own financial gain. Sometimes it's because of their own sexual exploitations as preachers of the gospel, supposedly. And we, we see that in this day and time, there were preachers preaching in the, in the Old Testament era for their own gain, saddling up to those who were the leaders and those who were the rulers, those who were exploiting the poor. And look what those guys said. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. You, you, you see the drama here? He says, don't preach. Don't preach things like that. Disgrace will not overtake us should this be said O house of Jacob it's Micah is asking should this be said what's the answer to that no right out there to the side no you shouldn't tell the prophet of God 
Don't condemn sin. Don't say that it's not going to happen. Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Yes. God is judging them. And then it switches over to God speaking. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? You see, the righteous have nothing to fear. So fill these in over on the right-hand side. The wicked, these are the lying preachers who have always existed. They minimize sin and judgment. That's what wicked preachers often do. They minimize sin and judgment. And let me tell you, it's not just about the prosperity guy on your cable channel. It could be the preacher from the 1920s or the 1930s that modernism and classical liberalism came into the pulpits all over America and all over England and they began to have a more erudite tone and they had their beautiful uh, smock that they would wear and they would preach in platitudes and they would preach in a more enlightened era that really didn't condemn sin and it became a I'm okay, you're okay gospel. Let's go to church and feel good about ourselves. So we go through decade after decade after decade of not preaching against the evils of idolatry in our nation, not preaching against the evils of social injustice, not preaching against the evils of immorality and godless living. Instead, we come in as whitewashed walls making everyone feel good about themselves. Friends, that is not the gospel. We have to recognize that the gospel points out our fault before God. And it's only when we begin to see our sin that we can possibly look to the Savior and rightly repent. So the message of, of Micah is hot, it's hard, it's painful, and it's true. You see, these minimize sin and judgment. They say it's not, look what it says there in verse, bottom of verse 6. It says, disgrace will not overtake us. I mean, this is part of classical liberalism that says, oh, come on, hell's not really real. That's figurative speech. My friends, false preachers, lying preachers, they cater to selfish desires. That's in part prosperity gospel, but it can also can be intellectualism, or it can also be some type of higher spirituality that, that is not at all based upon the Holy Spirit. You see, they utter nonsense and lies. Look down at verse 11. He circles back from verse 6. Go down in verse 11. It says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. That means he's drunk. He would be the preacher for this people. So you want to know what kind of preacher these people want? They want a guy who says meaningless, stupid stuff that's not true. And if a true man of God is evaluating it, he looks at it and says, you're drunk. You know, I mean, how much sense does a drunk guy make? I mean, have you ever been around somebody that's really drunk and have tried to have a conversation with them? Think about it. Have you tried to reason with a drunk guy before? I have plenty of times, sometimes right out here, you know, you come stumbling up and you start talking to them and, 
and they start talking, or they're mad, it's at the football game, and there's an altercation, and the police are there, and, you know, somebody's yelling, oh, go catch a bank robber, you know, to leave the guy alone, but you, you, you're, you're, that actually happened to me at a Dolphins game one time when I was a kid, um, and, and I just remember there was this huge conflict in front of us, and I remember the nonsensical words of the drunk guy. Friends, that, that's what a wicked, lying preacher does. They are drunkards. But look at verse 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy, God says. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. So people come passing by through our community they have no thought of war. They, they, maybe, maybe, they, maybe it's a wealthy guy coming through, and you just go, you go robbing. You see, this is the highway robbers. There's crime. There's injustice. It's against the people who have land that you're going to deal with permanently, and it's the guy who's just passing by. It's the opportunist crime. You see, this is like an enemy within. That's what he's saying in verse 8. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. It's like, man, the attack you would expect from the outside is actually coming from the inside. This is how wicked God's people can be. Treacherous highway, robbers, fill it in. They destroy, and I hate this one. Look at verse 9 with me. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. Such tender imagery here. Just think about that. Think about the, the, the sweet wife and the sweet mother who's made a home. And maybe she doesn't have much. But what she's had, she's made it sweet. And it's clean and it's ready and it smells good with with food and her children are there and you show up at the gate and you say get out this is a sweet family it's ripped out of their home friends it's wicked and it's evil God is saying look at the next part from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Here's the picture. There's a young child that freely is running and playing there in this home and has security and joy and love and what he needs. And so he sees the world full. And there's a smile as he plays. But when you come and you rip him out of his home, and you make his family destitute, and you cause him to perhaps lose his parents or lose any security he has, then all of a sudden, this beautiful splendor of peace and joy and hope, the splendor of God in the eyes of a child, is lost. You see, verse 9 is an expansion of verse 2. Verse 9 goes into more vivid imagery of the evil of taking people's stuff. 
And we see that God hates it. So look at what happens. When I just raised my voice and said, get out, that's what the evil say to the poor oppressed. But that's in verse 10. Look at what God says to the wicked. He yells, get out. Arise, go. For this is no place to rest. Because of your uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. You see, God's judgment is coming upon those who have oppressed the poor and have been mistreated and taken advantage of them. In verse 10 over there on the side, look what it says. Get out. Off to exile you go. So he's going to pack them out to another place in captivity. And what it's saying in verse 10 is that your disgusting disease of sin is not to be before him. Notice this. Think about this. Think about the flesh-destroying leprosy. That's what you see in verse 10. That's the idea. Look what it says. Because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. I just remind you that if you were unclean, even in the day of Jesus, we see this in the Gospels. If you were unclean, you would have to declare, I'm unclean. You have to live with the lepers. You couldn't get near someone. You know, we kind of relate to that with corona, right? Okay, you know, that, I mean, it, similarly, you, you would have to quarantine. The, the lepers had a leper colony where they weren't allowed to interact with anyone else. They were unclean. We, we can really relate to that at this moment. But here we see that with leprosy, what it does is it comes and it rots your extremities off. Your nose falls off. Your fingers turn to nubs. Your legs, your toes, eventually your limbs, they rot off in front of you. It is, it is uncleanliness. It is disgusting. You're banished from the camp. And here we see that that's how God views this sin and he comes and he banishes because of the wickedness my friends this is a serious statement of judgment and we've already mentioned verse 11 this is a circle back on those lying preachers if a man would go out and utter wind and lies you know nonsense and lies saying i will preach to you of wine and strong you know like a drunkard he would be the preacher of the people. But oh, how Micah shifts gears. He changes gears. And we see in verse 12 and 13, and I've left a blank out there in verse 12 and 13. There's, there's no space there. There's no line there. But just fill in there the regathering, as you see on the screen in front of you. Next to 12 and 13, just put in the regathering. This is God's grace still flowing. We see his grace still show up in the midst of all of this evil. In the midst of a whole nation that is characterized by such injustice. And such wickedness. We see this remnant. We see this thread of hope. And it's beautiful. Look at verse 12. 
I will, assemble, I will surely assemble all of you, O, o Jacob. Now, all of you is talking about his people, his true people of Jacob. I will gather, circle it, the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Now, I have been around in North Africa, I've been around a pen full of sheep. And sometimes when you gather them all in there before they're settled down for the night, they're all in there crowded together. And that's kind of what they sound like. And they're kind of crawling over each other and they're kind of, one of them will run into the other one. Sheep occasionally bite and nip at each other. And then sometimes they'll bite and nip at you. I mean, but, but you know, they're, they're noisy when they're all together. And, and notice that, that God is saying in a beautiful way, I'm going to gather you in to the fold. I'm going to gather you in and I'm going to have you in the pen and it's going to be safe. You're not going to be out. And this is really pointing to um, when, when Sennacherib's rage and siege is against Jerusalem and God brings them in and they're safe. He delivers them in this. So, so this is really part of Micah's prophecy of saying God's going, to, God's going to save some of you even right now. But the picture is in eternity... He's going to make you part of his flock. And the good shepherd is going to care for you. So all of the remnant will be gathered. Look at verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So God is going to regather the remnant of Israel, his people. His promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. He's not going to wipe all of them out. There is going to be a remnant that is faithful to him, that he comes and he brings to them his salvation and his security. And the way he's going to do it is through the Messiah. The Messiah is how he's going to save them. Verse 13, he opens the breach and goes up before them. That's what God does. God comes and he makes a way. God comes and he opens a door. And they break through and they pass the gate. Going out by it. Now, so fill these in. The good shepherd will bring them in. And the Savior King leads them out. This is the beauty of the ray of hope that Micah gives us. Then in the midst of such disgusting sin that God shows his promise real. Oh, can you look at Psalm 24, the Savior King? This is so beautiful and it, it just has to go with verse 13. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the Lord who does battle on behalf of his children. This is the Lord who comes and vanquishes death. This is the Lord who punishes the wicked and redeems the righteous. This is the salvation of God. Okay. Five minutes, nine, nine factors. 
some of you don't think I can do it. But the sermon is going to go all afternoon at home. Okay? So this is, here's your homework assignment to discuss these. And these come out of this passage. Number one, just because you don't see judgment coming doesn't mean that it isn't. They didn't see judgment coming, but it was on the way. How does that apply to you and me? In this world, do we think we're getting away with it? Sometimes even Christians think there's no consequences. Oh, Jesus paid it all. We need to think about this and how it applies. What about the lost and dying world? Do they say peace, peace, when there is no peace? Okay, number one, talk about that one. Number two, just because certain people may seem insignificant to you doesn't mean that they are insignificant to God. Talk about that. Number three, how you treat, quote unquote, insignificant people will directly affect how God treats you. Be careful how you treat the people that you don't esteem very highly. Number four, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Put on there verse one and two. Go back and look at verse one and two. They went out because they could. They went out and took that land because they could. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Just because Google can doesn't mean that Google should. Just because Facebook can doesn't mean that it should. Just because the government can doesn't mean that it should. Power does not bring some immunity to responsibility. Look at the next part here. Number five. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it is right. You see, they were saying we have this legal right to do this. And there's a bigger picture here, and we're going to see that in just a second. Just because something is legal doesn't make it right. Number six, just because something is illegal doesn't, make, doesn't mean that it is wrong. You see, sometimes the laws of men are against the law of God. You can't just think in your mind, oh, the government says that. Well, the government's not God. The government may be placed there by God, but the government can be wrong. And Christians need to have a proper understanding of where the limit of government is and where God prevails over it. Number seven, only God is the arbiter of right and wrong. That means the final word. Only God is the arbiter of final wrong. Not you and not anyone else. Discuss that this afternoon. Number eight. False preachers are where? Everywhere. Be very, very careful. Every word I say should be judged against the word of God. And where I deviate from the word of God, I should be corrected. And any preacher that ever preaches from this pulpit 
It is the word of God by which we must stand. Number nine, remaining in repentance, remaining in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to rest and blessing. If you want rest and you want blessing, then you run in repentance and faith to Jesus. This is where true justice comes. Would you please stand with me for prayer? Everybody would just get real quiet and real still, nobody moving around, nobody. Let's ask ourselves this question. Do I embrace the word of judgment against sin? Or do I ignore it? Do I resist it? Am I too busy for it? Am I, un- am I uninterested? And do I run to the mercy of Christ? You need to ask yourself that question. Have you turned to Christ and are you trusting in Christ? Friend, there's a certain judgment that is coming. I would call you to cast yourself upon Jesus, the one who can take away the guilt of your sin and the consequences of our rebellion. Father, I pray and I ask, Father, that we would be a people who take your judgment seriously. I pray that we would be a people who live by your word. I pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would cause us to repent the injustice in our lives. Lord, listening to false preachers and that we would run to the truth of your words. Lord, help us to claim the true foundation that there is only in Christ. Help us to rest in this great hope that is found in truly the rock of ages, the one who stands every age and every epoch in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing together a great and beautiful reminder of God's mercy. God's mercy. Friends, notice this lyrics. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from from thy wounded side with flow be of sin the double 